0: This is the BBC. Hello. In 1582, the Jesuit priest, Matteo Ricci, disembarked at the port of Macau with a mission to convert the people of China to Christianity. He planned to target the Ming Emperor, believing that if he adopted Catholicism, his subjects would follow. Over the next 30 years, Ricci became one of the first Westerners to enter the Forbidden City. He mixed with princes and mandarins and founded the first Catholic cathedral in Beijing. By sharing European knowledge with local scholars, he changed the way China saw the West, and his reports of China transformed the way Europe viewed China for centuries to come. His approach to conversion, though, later caused outrage in the Vatican. With me to discuss Matteo Ricci and the Ming are Mary Levin, Reader in Early Modern History at the University of Cambridge, Craig Clunas, Professor of the History of Art at the University of Oxford, and Anna Gerritsen, Reader in History at the University of Warwick. Craig Clunas, how much did Europeans know about China at the end of the 16th century? Well, they knew that China
1: was very big uh, and they thought, and they were right, that China was very prosperous. We ha- Europeans had first arrived in Chinese waters at the very beginning of the 16th century. The Portuguese arrive in China uh, around 1513. So by the end of the century, by the time Ricci arrives in Macau, there have been considerable numbers of decades of trade and interaction. But this trade and interaction had all taken place at the very edges of the empire. So there was very little knowledge about what the interior of the empire was like, how it was governed, what the major cities were like. So they did know something, after all remember that Christopher Columbus, when he set out, he set out for the East, he was attempting to find a way to China. So the idea of this great wealthy empire was very firmly put in the minds of trade and of rulers in Europe, and certainly the Catholic Church and the uh, counter-reformation project to evangelize the world certainly thought of China as a potential field where there were millions and millions of souls to be, to be converted.
0: This is the counter-reformation, this is the Catholic Church eventually reacting, not too much later, reacting against Luther and his massive impact on the religious nature of, what let's call it, Europe for ease. Uh, and one of the drives they made was quite extraordinary, that they decided to convert the world to Christianity, just to show who was in charge.
1: They did indeed decide, there was an aim to convert the whole world, and the Jesuit order of which Ricci was a member is very much, uh, very much part of that. Uh, And so they're spanning out across the whole world. Remember that the Portuguese and the Spaniards by now control Latin America. They're involved in the Mughal Empire in India. Uh, They're involved in Japan. Uh, The year that Ricci became a Jesuit is the year that the Spanish uh, conquer the Philippines in 1571. So there's definitely this sense of a huge global project uh, of which Ricci is just a small part.
0: Did you come and develop the idea of China just a little bit? I, I mean, had, what sort of reports had come back to Europe about what what, what Ricci faced when he got there was a population, we're told, which was about the size of the whole of Europe, a very sophisticated society in some ways. He didn't know, about, and the brutalities and that, organized, scholarly, and so on. Was was that coming through? I think it
1: was coming through to a degree. There had been some books, and there had been a book published. Uh, uh, in Portugal by uh, a Dominican who had managed to spend a month in the great city of uh, Canton, Guangzhou, uh, in the 1550s. Uh, but, but clear evidence of the, uh, what the empire was like was to a certain extent lacking. It was an unknown land to a degree. So there are images of China, but there's very little uh, concrete or solid information about what it's really like. And certainly about, about how it's run and how it's governed.
0: Was there, uh, were there further, deeper, de- other designs on China? Was it a sense of uh, trade following the cross, or was it out there to get souls, to save souls?
1: Well, there's also the idea that you could potentially conquer it. Um, between the 1560s and the f- 1580s, Philip II of Spain, uh, the man who launched the Spanish Armada, he's faced constantly, uh, there are coming across his desk, plans to conquer China. People are saying, you know, look how easily the the Incas and the Aztecs fell if we had 50,000 Spanish troops we could conquer the whole empire and he has to say at one point look don't send me any more plans for conquering China I'm kind of busy at the moment there are other there are other things going on but certainly there were there were a series of European schemes to, to take control of China by force. So uh, this is also an important part of the background in which, in which Ricci is operating and a part of the background that the Chinese are very well aware of. And the Chinese image of Europeans at this period is of dangerous and violent people who are interested in trade but who can turn nasty at the slightest provocation.
0: Mary Lemon, the Jesuits were fairly new order when uh, uh, Ricci joined them. What was distinctive about them?
2: That's right. Uh, The Jesuits are one of the the new orders of the Counter-Reformation Church. They um, originated in Paris in the 1530s and they gained papal approval in 1540. And one of the... particular characteristics of the Jesuits, which is clear right from the outset, is that they took a fourth vow. So besides poverty, chastity and obedience, they also vowed um, to go wherever in the world the Pope sent them. So mobility was absolutely at the heart of the order. And Whereas you think of, of some religious communities as you know, living in a religious house, um, sharing in religious services throughout the day and night, coming together to eat in the refectory, wearing religious habits. Um, The Jesuits were not committed to any of that. They had a far more uh, flexible uh, model for their life um, because they wanted to travel. Um, They didn't have to wear uh, particular religious habits. They were encouraged to wear the clothes um, of the people they were um, uh, evangelising in order to fit in.
0: Did the Pope call, I've forgotten the phrase now, which is a bit of a nuisance, given that we're live and now talking about it. What did the Pope call, his secret army, his... Soldiers of Christ. Soldiers of Christ. But they were, one of their particularities, that they seemed to be more uh, directly connected with him than the other orders.
2: Well, that's right, because of this, um, you know, this additional uh, vow of particular obedience um, to the Pope. Um, So, yeah, there really was this idea that the Jesuits were willing to go wherever the Pope would send them.
0: And also uh, one thing that distinguished them was their scholarship, uh, their high levels of scholarship, the fact that the, those who could afford it in, let's keep calling it Europe, Catholic mm-hmm. Europe, uh, sent their children to be educated by these men who were fiercely intellectual.
2: Exactly, I mean the Jesuits put huge store by education, um, the schools which were for the, the laity, the layboys, um, were a really important uh, way of um, making connections with the European um, elites but also the education of the Jesuits themselves, the Jesuit colleges, the the extensive period of um, training that Jesuits underwent, um, learning not just... um, Theology, of course, but also really a, a good humanist education grounded in the classics, history, philosophy, and also um, the sciences, maths, astronomy, This is pre-Galileo,
0: so, so we're talking about them being able to follow all sorts of sciences, astronomy, and yeah. the new technologies. What do we know of Matteo Ricci's early life before he left Europe?
2: So he was born in uh, 1552 in Maturata, in the um, Papal States. That's in, in central eastern um, Italy. He was the son of an apothecary, Um, and I think it's really nice to think of him uh, growing up in a a pharmacy shop where you, you know, he could have smelled these eastern spices in the pharmacy um, jars, you know, the rhubarb and the ginger and the the mace and the cinnamon and so on. Um, He, uh, as a nine-year-old boy, he was sent by his parents to the Jesuit school in Macerata, which was brand new. It was set up in 1561, and uh, Ricci went there in its first um, year, and that was obviously hugely... Um, influential then when he was 16 he headed off to the capital to Rome uh, to study law Um, but it's a classic uh, story I suppose of of conversion Um, you know he was supposed to be doing the worldly uh, career secular stuff but in fact the the pull of the Jesuits um, didn't leave off him Um, and after a few years of studying law, he went over to uh, the novice house of Sant'Andrea Quirinale in Rome in order to train to be a Jesuit priest.
0: And for several years he went through very rigorous, not fairly, very rigorous training.
2: Absolutely, so five years full on Jesuit training in, in Rome before he was sent off to India, to Goa.
0: So he's in, in, let's say he's in Goa, Gerritsen, but he's he's about to move further east. How must China be coming to outsiders at this time under the Ming emperor, Ming dynasty?
3: Well, (coughs) China probably was at that time. Um, very full of contradictions, I would say. So it was established in 1368, and that establishment at that time by the first emperor of the Ming was uh, to be a contrast with the period before, which was open-minded, gave equal rights to different religious traditions, was welcoming to merchants, um, from many different places, particularly from Central Asia, um, so the Ming was established under an, an atmosphere of of, um, of change of. Uh, Keeping out these kind of foreign threats, so the northern wall was fortified, merchants weren 't officially allowed in the country. Um, the size of the administration was set, the laws weren 't officially to be changed at all um, so officially the the visitors let 's say let 's call them these the, the, in, in a nice way the Portuguese as they arrived on the south coast, the Jesuits particularly were rebutted they weren 't allowed officially to enter um so that all the, this sort of narrative is that the ming was closed the ming was was inward looking was xenophobic even but when you look a little bit more closely and particularly at the 16th century you see a very different world in fact what you see is that the laws that had been established were almost unenforceable the size of the administration had proportionally uh, diminished because the gro- growth of the population The attempts to enforce these restrictions of traders as they came in from outside uh, proved to be impossible. The coastal line, miles and miles of it, of course, all full of secret ports and harbours and little inlets, absolutely impossible to keep out um, those who wanted to come in. So in fact by the 16th century, as Craig was saying earlier, there was a thriving trade. Commodities leaving China, silver coming in in vast quantities most silver likely... Silver was what
0: they most wanted, wasn't it? Silver
3: yeah. was what they most wanted and, and the most... Uh, the easiest way of embarking on this trade. And of course it was silver from from the Spanish Empire, from Peru. So, So really China was, by the 16th century, at the heart of a global economy, of an exchange system, of commodities and of silver. Um,
0: How Ricci went there to convert. (laughs) It's really gallant, isn't it? I mean, it makes David and Goliath look like a sort of a grain of sand on a mountain, really. But he went to China to convert it to Christianity. How uh, available was China for that effort?
3: Well, again, I think it's it's an answer that has to be contradictory. So on the one hand, um, they faced an enormous challenge. They found um, a, a place that was extremely literate, took education very seriously, took uh, scholarly learning very seriously. So they couldn't enter and say, look, you have nothing. We have all the learning. That didn't work. They also couldn't offer... Um, a sort of idea of, of, of hierarchy and order and say we will give you this structure because that was all already present there too but in terms of the religion they found a very complex system that was in many ways very mm. open minded um, because it it, it wasn't problematic within the Chinese religious practices to coexist next to each other. So there was a Confucian tradition, a Buddhist tradition, a Taoist tradition, there was popular religion, and all of those, in a way, coexisted quite happily next to each other. So at some level, this this, this, this syncretic practice of, of a lack of exclusivity meant that Christianity could somehow slot into this.
0: Except for the inconvenient fact that Christianity declared itself to be an exclusive religion.
3: Precisely. So that was exactly the issue. Um, So uh, it wasn't problematic for a Confucian scholar to adhere to Confucian ideology and to stick to uh, Confucian principles, to guide his family life, his uh, respect for his ancestors, his relationship with his ruler. But also draw on, let's say, the, the services that a Buddhist temple might offer, certain prayers, maybe the funeral for his mother. Um, he might well also dabble in, in Taoist philosophy or maybe use a Taoist specialist, all entirely unproblematically. But the commitment to disavow all those practices and to turn to Christianity exclusively was much, much more difficult. And that's one of the challenges that the Jesuits faced when they arrived.
0: Craig Clunas, were there any useful precedents for Matteo Ricci when he was working out the strategy for this for this mission?
1: Well, the Jesuits had had <coughs> a certain amount of success in uh, in other places, and I, I think the the. Uh, Japan is a very interesting case the Jesuits had been established in Japan from earlier in the 16th century Japan at this period was going through a very chaotic phase um, and different warlords are looking for uh, advantage with one another and therefore uh, it was much more, the Jesuits were much more able in Japan to to make connections with very powerful and important people who, who were willing to use them as part of their strategies, it was all connected with the trade as Anna has said Um, So uh, the idea that if you went for the top, uh, I I, I suppose there's also the idea that in a sense if you knock out the top, because after all the the experience of the conquest of, of the states of Latin America had always been about of destroying the person at the top. So in a sense, if you could convert the person at the top, I think all early modern people, everybody in the 16th century thought in these very hierarchical ways. This was true in China as much as as much as in Europe, that that, the the, the human society was a hierarchy and, and getting to the person at the top was what mattered.
0: And it was a precedent precedent that Christianity had plenty of evidence for from the beginning. I mean, well, 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 near the beginning, they went to Constantine was an example of going to the top and changing Rome into it. And then when they came across to this country, they went for the kings in Northumbria and they went for the kings and particularly the queens, actually. That's where they went. So it was it had proved its worth. Yes, absolutely.
1: The Emperor Constantine is constantly in the thoughts of men who know their sacred history very well indeed.
0: So he was, That was the, the idea was he would somehow, and we're now talking to a man who took years and years and years mm. to get to Beijing, mm. uh, he would get there, meet the emperor, and then he would be well on his way.
1: Well, the other idea, in a sense, what they want the emperor to do is to issue a clear order that they are allowed to live in China and to preach the gospel. This is what they want. They want, a, they want a, as it were, a, a charter from the emperor which will say... This is legitimate. These people have a right to be here. I, I support what they do as a as a preliminary stage to to uh, the actual conversion of the of the imperial family. But this is what Ricci wants. This is what he's fixated on that if he can get to Beijing, if he can get to the emperor, if he can get the express permission of the emperor for the uh, evangelization process, then then that will be the crucial step. So that's what he's focused on from a very early stage.
0: Mary Lemon, how did uh, Matteo Ricci use his scholarship to gain influence?
2: Well, Ricci was absolutely insistent that the way to convert the Chinese was through reason, science and books he said this repeatedly and um in his letters to his Jesuit colleagues he um very often asked them to send out books so you know send back send over to him books of about clockmaking or geometry or astronomy because he said you know with these things i can really impress um the chinese and i think this was partly um because of his own self identity as a very learned european man um and it was partly because he rightly identified um the literati um, as, in some sense, uh, sharing that identity. So the literati, uh, uh, the, the state, um, the, the civil servant uh, class in in, in um, China who um, had had to pass many, many um, examinations in order to gain their posts and were deeply immersed in, in Confucian learning. And so uh, as part of this strategy of, of going to the top, um, Ricci was absolutely convinced that if he could have conversations with the mandarins, if he could impress them with Western science, then um, they would be um, drawn over um, to his thinking.
0: There's almost a tension there though, because as, as, um, as Craig said uh, earlier on and the, then, oh, I think it was you said actually, uh, Jesuits didn't have to dress uh, as, a, didn't have a uniform, they dressed as they dressed mm. and he had two identities didn't he? Because he started off by dressing as a Buddhist, so trying to reach out to Let's call them ordinary people, for Mm -hmm. want of a better phrase. And then he didn't think that was working well enough, so he started to dress like a mandarin and go for the great Confucian scholars and so on.
2: Exactly. Well, um, so the the Jesuits um, really abided by this principle of when in Rome, do as the Romans do. But, of course, that's all very well. That actually requires choices because you know, not everybody in a massive society like China is, is behaving in the same way. So you have to you know, make your choices about who with whom you're going to align yourself. Um, and it's, it's quite true that um, when the Jesuits arrived in China, they first thought the obvious uh, group to identify with were the Buddhist priests, you know, celibate religious men. It, it made sense to them initially, but then as they got to know um, the society better, um, and of course the Jesuits were very committed to ethnography, to finding out about the foreign lands that they were attempting to evangelise, they realised that the people with the real clout and the real status were the Mandarins. And you know, in the 1590s, that's when Ricci changed his, his clothes and he you know, he put on the fine uh, Confucian uh, robes of a scholar.
0: And by that time, uh, Anne Gerriton, he was well into Chinese um, life. His... Um, Chinese culture. His linguistic skills seem to have been extraordinary. Could you give us some notion of that before... Could you give us some notion Um
3: of that? Sure, so he decided initially to learn Chinese and that would have been spoken Chinese and quite quickly after a year or so was able to converse easily. Um, But he recognised that the spoken language is quite different from the written language and that this literary language, which is a comparison you can make similarly about Latin and Italian or uh, other dialects at the time, um, that was the language really of scholarly learning. So he immersed himself in the learning of the literary texts and and that took years and, and for those of us who have spent time learning that, we know how hard it is, but it is also uh, the challenge that he faced particularly is that he didn't have any of the kind of aids that we have, so no dictionaries, no grammar structures. He created those things. So his commitment to that learning is, is absolutely phenomenal.
0: And he, as is, his output is phenomenal, the books he translated or from one language into another and at one stage found a Latin equivalent alphabet for the Chinese alphabet. Is that right?
3: Well the Chinese don't have an alphabet but but a set of characters, set of characters that right, are yeah. not necessarily just by looking at them clear about how to pronounce them. So he he created an early system of representing these characters by Roman letters and indicating the tone of them because it's also a tonal language. So he devised this way of representing Chinese characters that made it Readable, I suppose, not just for himself but for his fellow. So there's really
0: bridging connections there with with the work. One thing that he, 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 one great wonder that he achieved was to make the complete map of ten thousand countries, a massive map he created, presumably with help. Can you tell us about that and why, what sort of impact it had?
3: So this was almost his calling card. Um, it was his one of his most effective ways of impressing the scholars, as Mary was saying earlier. Um, it started off in a fairly simple form. It was basically in one of the first residences, the first residence in Zhaoching, in the south of China, on the wall in the reception room. How big was it? Probably that first map, which doesn't survive, uh, quite small. And it was just a way of, of starting a conversation, saying, here's China, this is where I'm from. A sort of informal piece to 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 get people interested in who he was and where he was from, um, it got picked up and it got uh, it caught the attention of of scholars of of people further afield. And Matteo Ricci, over time, created several iterations of this map. The ones that, there's a, a 1602 map in the Vatican that remains. There's a 1608 addition um, that remains. Um, what we know about what they all share is that Matteo Ricci made some very key uh, adaptations that made this, this extraordinary uh, piece of advertising almost. So one of the things he did was, as opposed to European maps at the time, which always would have had Jerusalem at the centre, he made the key move to uh, move Europe and Africa to the left-hand side of the map, which of course then shifted Asia to the centre of the map. China just to the left of the center, and Japan just to the right. And then on the right-hand side of the map were the Americas. So North America and South America, which was of course fairly new knowledge in Europe too at the time, but certainly entirely unknown. Um, in China at the time. So the map worked as a way of introducing new knowledge uh, and and bringing that into circulation in China, but also this key innovation again that Matteo Ricci uh, characterizes Matteo Ricci is that he made it in a way readable to the Chinese viewers. So he added the names of places in Chinese for many places, these were there was no equivalent. There was no Chinese place name for unknown places, and they're still the names used for these uh, places today. And it created this visual impression of what the world looked like and what China's place within that might be. So the larger, the later editions of the map are about 10 foot wide and 5 foot high. They're absolutely enormous. And they were, as you say, exactly collaborative projects. They were visually quite stunning pieces.
0: Craig uh, Clunas, now can I come to what became the most controversial part of what he did, which was this, uh, let's call it the accommodation strategy, what was that? Well the accommodation strategy I think
1: <clears throat> it comes out of the idea which we've already talked about that you're not going to convert China by telling and you're certainly not going to convert the Chinese upper classes by telling them that, that they've got it all wrong so uh, what you need to do is to find the parts of what they already believe that are not uh, abhorrent to Christianity and you need to work with them. So Ricci convinces himself that uh, if you go back into the early Chinese texts, the early Confucian classics, it's obvious that the Chinese did worship what he calls the Lord of Heaven, Tianzhu. And Tianzhu is still the word used for the Christian God uh, in uh, by by uh, by Catholic Chinese today Um, so he he finds this term in the Confucian classics and he says okay so they did have because it's part of his belief system that God has placed uh intimations of the truths of Christianity in the belief systems of pagan peoples uh, because these things are true and so pagan belief systems already include intimations of the truths of Christianity and therefore you should work with the grain of what these people um, already believe. So he's very much about stressing this the omnipotent Lord of Heaven, the creator of the universe What he's therefore not so keen on talking about are the bits of Christianity that are going to be most difficult for Chinese to absorb. And those are the Incarnation, the Incarnation of Christ, And in particular, things like the crucifixion. So he very, very much downplays that within the visual imagery that of Christianity that the Jesuits present uh, again in their residences and that that visitors to their houses will see what is foregrounded is the image of the Madonna and child. Um, They they keep crucifixion scenes very much uh, out of the way and they downplay that both in their writings and in their visual presentation of Christianity.
0: But Catholics back in Rome had every right to be a bit uh, upset that the, the crucifixion and the resurrection didn't play much of a part when it was central to the whole enterprise.
1: Yes, but of course the the level of communication Ricci is kind of on the other side of the world yes, and although well, he writes regularly He, he people, doesn't tell he, them that. He doesn't tell them that. People in Rome only know what he's up to by, by what he chooses to write back. And of course his his uh, superiors in the Jesuit order would entirely approve of what he was doing. He wasn't he wasn't some kind of maverick who's making this stuff up as he goes along. He's uh, he's very much in tune with uh, the Jesuit understanding and also the idea that, that sacred mysteries should be not unveiled all in one lump, but that uh, they should be unveiled a little bit at a time, in keeping with the ability of uh, potential converts to understand what you're saying.
0: Can you continue in that line in a way, Mary Lavin, his accommodation strategy? In the, his book, The True Meaning of the Lord of Heaven, was written in Chinese. What impact did that book have?
2: Well, that is the the ultimate document of accommodation. Um, It was published in uh, Beijing in 1603. um, And to to go back to to Craig's point about, you know, what did the people in in Rome know about it? um, One of the reasons why it took so long uh, for Ricci to get to the point of publishing that catechism um, was because he was actually awaiting um, censorship and approval um, and uh, that eventually came through after many um, delays and logistical complications. It came through from Macau, but the permission was not coming directly um, from, from uh, Rome. And of course, it's a book written in Chinese, so nobody in Rome would have been able to um, understand it. Um, it was I, mean, I think what's remarkable um, about that that book um, is that while it um, as far as to set forth the uh, fundamental um, doctrines of Christianity. And, you know, it's, it tells the readers about um, an omnipotent um, creator God um, and uh, the immortality of the soul and um, heaven and hell and um, human agency, free will. It's got, you know, those, those key theological tenets tucked away right at the end of this long book. In a small uh, paragraph is um the this section about the life of christ um which says uh you know christ Christ was born um of a maiden of a virgin mother um and um thirty three years later he reascended to heaven that's it um, <laughs> now the um the catechism is framed as a dialogue between um a a a Western scholar and a Chinese scholar. So in a sense it kind of dramatises that ideal relationship that Ricci was trying to create between Jesuits and um literati. Um, and um I think it's hard to to gauge um its success actually. Yeah.
0: No, it's just, I'm going to congratulate you for continuing uninterruptedly with that reply when we had a very efficient studio manager come in and change most of the microphones around the table while you were doing it, for reasons which will be explained to us all later. <laughs> Nevertheless, <laughs> we'll get on with the programme. have to speed up a little bit now. Anna, um, how, how well did he understand Confucianism?
3: It was a learning process, let's say. So it took time, he it started off uh, from... Having to learn the basic text and and, and working his way into the scholarship uh, by the time he arrived in nanchang. Um, uh, he, When he changed his dress and started to appear as a Confucian scholar, um, he actually had a very sophisticated understanding and had dialogues with other scholars.
0: So he was well down the track by then?
3: Yeah, yeah, I would say, and he was able to, to communicate effectively on the principles of Confucianism. And do we
0: have names? Do we know certain persons he talked to? Or is this a generalization that I know about Confucianism?
3: No, we, do, we We have some of his interlocutors, we know some of the individuals he worked with, Chinese scholars, and they were collaborations.
0: Craig Linus, how close was he getting to his about goal, which was to meet the Emperor of China? Uh, in the, He got into the forbidden city, but? Well, in 1601, uh, partly through the uh, agency
1: of various eunuchs, these are the castrated servants of the imperial family, through the agency of eunuchs, he, he finally does make it Beijing and by this point he is he does know some very powerful and quite important people high up uh, in the Imperial bureaucracy so he's able to uh, reside in in Beijing Uh, he this is this is part of uh, from, from the Emperor's point of view having people come from very far away and tell you you're great is one of the things that makes you makes you an Emperor so the Imperial court is used to the idea of foreigners coming from very far away, we'll house them, we'll feed them, we'll listen to them, tell us how great we are, but we won't interact with them. And in fact, I don't think that Ricci had any w- chance at all of ever meeting the emperor face to face. That that was never going to happen.
0: But there's a sense in which he became influential in
1: court circles. Well, he becomes influential in uh, imperial in circles in the sense that uh, high bureaucrats know him, but those high bureaucrats have a very dif- difficult and conflicted relationship with the Emperor of the day who often for long periods refuses to meet his senior bureaucrats at all. Any of them? He refuses to meet any of them. He goes into a massive sulk. Uh, this is all about a dispute about who is to be the Crown Prince and and this leads to a huge row between the Emperor and his high bureaucrats in which for a very long period he won't meet them, he won't interact with them, he sends them messages via
0: his eunuchs. On to the eunuchs then, Marianne um What reaction... Or interaction did Ricci have with the eunuchs, and why is it important that we discuss it?
2: Well, he had to deal with them because they were this buffer around the emperor. So, if he wanted to try and you know get access to the emperor, it had to be um, via the eunuchs. Um this was the period it was it's pretty much the high point of eunuchs um in Ming history. Um so there were about a hundred thousand uh eunuchs um at this yeah, we've been
0: there before, it still makes your eyes water. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed.
2: <laughs> um Richie did not conceal his contempt for the eunuchs. You know, he's incredibly rude about them. He describes them as uh barbarous, uh stupid, stolid, dull, uh baseborn. Um, and so
0: they didn't learn diplomacy at this <laughs> judgment
2: As these eunuchs
0: are very powerful, he must have known that seriously.
2: Well, and that that's that's absolutely the tension there. That um, you know, he he needed to sweet talk them. Often he had to bribe them. He had to give them presents. He needed their influence. They were very important intermediaries, and he didn't like them at all.
0: Can we um, take this one step further, uh, Anna Gerritsen, He made scarcely any met scarcely any women, and that's because of the system. And also, if he thought what he thought about the eunuchs, as you said, no wonder, because they guarded the women.
3: Uh, yes, the women at the imperial court. But he, he actually had very little to say about women also in his time before he arrived at the court. And it's not at all surprising, because the circles he operated in were the elite families, the elite men, um, guided by Confucian principles. And they would have because of family morals and guidance, kept the women out of sight, kept them inside uh, the inner chambers, as it were. So it's not surprising that the only women he encountered would have been lower class, lower born, uh, more uh, impoverished women, about whom he had very little to say. Um, what's interesting is that in with hindsight, um, for many centuries probably, we, we relied heavily in European perspectives of China uh, on the writings by the likes of Matteo Ricci, who said, oh, well. These women are hardly visible, they are mostly very modest and obedient, Um, it's only recently that we've started to look a bit more behind the scenes and recognize that probably in those very same households that he entered, when the men were not there, and of course they were away for long stretches of time, it was the women who were in charge, who were doing the financial transactions, who were educating their sons, who were communicating with other networks of writing women. So he had great powers of observation, but certain things were just not visible to him.
0: Great learners. Um, what What are the Europeans learning about China from him while he is there?
1: Well, he's writing lots of letters back, so I think that within the network of Jesuits and Jesuit contacts in in European elites, there's a percolating knowledge uh, about China. But uh, uh, while he's just after he's arrived in China, a book is published in 1585 by a Mexican bishop called Mendoza, Uh, and this is a, a huge bestseller. Uh, in China in, in Europe at the time it goes into 30 editions or up to 1600 uh, and this is the book that Europeans read. So they are getting inf- more information about China, but it's not coming directly from Ricci. But the success of this book, I think, tells us that there is a huge hunger in Europe to know about China. So I think it's it's un- inconceivable that Ricci's letters, and we know he wrote many, many more than those which survive, that these letters will have been recopied and passed around within the Jesuit order, uh, that, that People in
0: Latin America will have known to an extent what he was up to. And so we're back into China, Mary Love. And what's the feeling, is, what, what what impression do you have, of, of what progress, if we can use that word, he would have been making by the time he got to the Forbidden City. By then he's been in China for quite a long time, very long time, devoted mm-hmm. to it, like the language, written books in Chinese, translated in and out of Chinese. What What's the view of this man and his influence? Is it, he's an eccentric or is it, he's He's becoming part of it, or is he threatens to take us over
2: yeah, well, I suppose there are various different ways in which you could measure uh, Ricci's success. Um, one thing that we could contemplate is how many people actually converted um and by the time of his death, um we're talking about two thousand two thousand five hundred maybe that sounds impressive, but the population of China was about 200 million. <laughs> so it's actually a tiny, tiny handful. I should say, by the way, following on from, from Anna's point, that actually, um, where there are, uh, where there is specific information about who converted, quite a large number of that 2,000 odd uh, Christian converts um, were women. Um, so that's, that's interesting. Um, of course, in but one from way... From the
0: beginning, it was always more appreciated. Christianity was more Always seems to be more appreciated by women from Mary Magdalene onwards.
2: Sure, but I, mean, I think what's really interesting is always this tension between what Ricci is saying he's doing and aspiring to do and what's actually happening. Um, so, you know, among these converts, there, there are women, there are you know, artisans, there are Buddhists, um, and it's you know, very, very few of these um, uh, Confucian scholars which were his ideal.
1: Craig. I mean we actually know quite a lot don't we about what uh, Chinese intellectuals thought about Ricci he was a big big celebrity and lots of people record meeting him and some of this is very positive I mean they people they find him very suave they find him very personable uh, one person who uses the term of him he's, he's kind of intricate he's tricksy they can't quite figure out who he is and the question why people are asking themselves well why is he here they don't they don't quite they don't entirely get it and of course there are are some people who have an answer to why he is here which is that he is a foreign spy so for example from 1609 we have a a very interesting account of a dinner party uh, of people none of whom had ever met Ricci but they've all heard of him he's a big celebrity and they're sitting around this dinner saying well it's quite obvious what he's a spy for the Portuguese Um, these foreigners by this time the Dutch are involved there's wars going on between Europeans off the coast of China And, and Ricci is some kind of spy we all know that so clearly not everybody thought he was he was utterly wonderful.
0: Um, Anna, the, in 1715, um, by the century after his death, Pope Clement XI the elef- the wanted to ban ancestor worship. What was the reaction in China?
3: Well, so ancestor worship, uh, the care for one's ancestor was a religious duty and Matteo Ricci allowed that. Um, that this was part of his, his accommodation. Accom- absolutely, part of his accommodation strategy, um, which worked very well. It was one way of facilitating uh, communication and conversion. Um, but in the longer term, that certainly didn't sit well. Um, and that's one of those uh, bits of news that filtered back to the Pope and, and, and was, uh, had a very dim view of that. And the uh, reaction of the Pope was to outlaw um, this practice of ancestor worship for those who had converted. Um, And when the Emperor of China found out that some individual elsewhere, this Pope who they couldn't place quite, um, had made a decision that affected the Emperor's own Chinese subjects, uh, that certainly didn't go down well. And that led to that banning uh, decision of 1715.
0: The expulsion of the Jesuits.
3: Exactly, exactly. So with hindsight that accommodation strategy probably uh, had quite disastrous effects, but at the time that Ritchie was there working his way through Chinese society was probably the only way of doing it.
0: Uh, We're near the end now, Craig. Is there any way in which we can talk about this mission in terms of success or failure? I think it's a bit too late to be, to have many nuances here, correct? Yes, I think Ricci set for Europeans what Ricci told us,
1: and in the books about Ricci published immediately after his death. uh, That became what China was like for Europeans, and to a certain extent, the, the Western image of China, right down into the 20th century, is still dominated by a set of terms about the literati, about this society, which Ricci was the first person to lay down. Also, for, Ch- for Chinese intellectuals, Ricci remains a name to
0: conjure with for centuries. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Mary Levin, Anna Garrison and Craig Clunas. Next week, we'll be talking about the 18th century playwright and novelist Fanny or Francis Burney. Thanks for listening.
2: And the In Our Time podcast gets some
1: extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests.
0: So what did we miss out? That's the first thing. <laughs> well, I think
1: the first thing we missed out was the point that... Uh, although Ricci is still the big name there were lots of other, mm. not lots but mm-hmm. a number, a significant number of other yeah. Europeans in China and indeed when Ricci first went to China he wasn't even the main man, he wasn't the senior man. Was, uh, that,
0: uh, was that Ruggieri? This is
1: Ruggieri, yeah. who, who is clearly a very very important figure in getting the whole thing off the ground and whose skills were complementary to Ricci's in many ways. So I think the the, the the most important thing that we missed out was this, we, 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 did the, we, we fetishized Ricci into yeah. this, it's all about are not him. missing it
0: out now because it's being recorded. Yes, it's, it's, all, it's all it's all is. about him. So but on the Facebook other hand, I was
1: thinking about this. But but actually, from the Chinese point of view, Richie's the only one that counts. given that we have a yeah. forty-four
0: minute program and not seventeen seminars. Do. It wasn't fetishistic really. It was actually just selecting someone to dwell on. But but we're not doing that because
1: he is the I mean we're right to focus on Ricci in a sense from the Chinese point of view because he's the name they remember. He's the star at the time. The Chinese sources at the time do not go on and on about meeting Ruggieri and so on. They go on about meeting Ricci. And Ricci's Chinese name, Li Ma Dao is still one that's known to every educated Chinese person, whereas only specialists have ever heard of Ruggieri in in China as well. He was
0: given a house, wasn't he, uh, near the Forbidden City, is that right, or a place to live? No? yes
3: no he yeah. had a he had a residence um first Ruggieri set this up in Daotinging, which is not far from Canton in the south. Uh, he established a place to live in in Nanchang he, and then of course famously the house in in Beijing. so yeah. he had various residences, um, most of those combined with a church uh, in fact, this first church that he established in in um in Zhaoqing, in the south, was a house plus a church, which they identified as a as a temple. So the term given to this, si, is is the name for a Buddhist temple, and at this time he dressed as a Buddhist monk, he shaved his hair. So it will have looked very much like a place of worship that was perhaps Buddhist in nature. Um, and that was their first base from which to, to begin the process of conversion.
2: And it was next to this great pagoda, wasn't mm-hmm. it, which mm-hmm. was uh, called the Tower of High Fortune, which is basically a you know, channel good energy so it absolutely fits with this uh pluralistic notion of, of chinese religion which was essential for him getting a foothold mm-hmm. uh, but then of course it's more well, difficult th- to embed that actually exactly yeah. to get yeah. a
0: commitment did his did his death have any was there do we have any record of not so much how he died as how his death was treated
1: well he was buried in some state. He's given land to be buried in uh, by the emperor and that's a, that's a sign of favour. The the burying of foreign, envo- foreign envoys who died in China had been buried on Chinese soil before so in a sense this again is part of the imperial beneficence to people who have come from very far away to give them a place to be buried and and his gravestone was one of the sort of tourist sites of Beijing uh, really, right down. Well, it still is, but but it was a, tu- a tourist it <laughs> was a tourist <laughs> site in Beijing. It, it, very shortly after he died, there's it, a guidebook to Beijing published in 1635, which lists Ricci's grave as one of the things that you can go and
0: see there. Well, I see the producer Simon Tillison hovering at the door. In he comes,
2: bringing tea or coffee. What would you like? <laughs>